Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian communities and cults, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Hey, Failed Utopians, I'm back, and today's episode has nothing to do with Thomas More. I know, you're all super disappointed, but if you stuck with me through eight episodes of Utopia, how can you possibly fail now? Well, I'll tell you, failure is always an option, and it's never too late to fail. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. But seriously, friends, thank you so much for all your support. Your downloads, your word of mouth passing it on, repping the show with attractive and flattering merchandise, and your donations that help keep the show going. Failed Utopia fans are the best fans ever. Today, you get to hear about an Australian, new age, nuclear apocalypse, doomsday, child-stealing cult called the Great White Brotherhood of Initiates and Masters, or for short, the family. Some episodes of this podcast contain disturbing or upsetting topics. Use your discretion for yourself and those around you. This won't be appropriate for kids. If you feel you need support, please consider asking for help through a crisis line, a mental health professional, or a loved one. I have resources including crisis hotline phone numbers listed in the show notes. The cult operated outside of Melbourne, Australia from about 1963 until the early 1990s. The short version? Cult leader Anne Hamilton Byrne was a reincarnated female Jesus, supposed to bring humanity back from the brink after a nuclear war-induced apocalypse. They stole babies, and they also dropped a lot of acid. But Here's the longer version. In the early 1960s, Anne Hamilton was a Melbourne-based yoga teacher and self-styled spiritual guru to her yoga students. As she grew in influence among her middle-aged female students, it turned out she had a bit of a talent not just for contorting into poses, but also for manipulating and conning people. She wanted to grow her little group into something significant, respectable, influential, and of course, lucrative. She set out to expand her influence and reach some more powerful people to become her disciples. Her first high-profile mark was Dr. Rainer Johnson, a physicist who was a well-respected academic and traveled in elite social circles. She set about recruiting him in 1962 to legitimize the little group she was forming with the yoga ladies. Supposedly, she slept with Dr. Johnson's gardener to gain insight and information about the doctor and his family so that she could pose as a clairvoyant and scam him into believing that she knew things about him through her psychic abilities. She was bold 
She went to his house, knocked on his door, introduced herself, and gave her psychic spiel. One of the things she told the doctor was that he and his wife would take a trip to India and that while abroad, his wife would become ill. The doctor and his wife did take a trip to India and believe it or not, his wife actually did get sick with dysentery. Wow, maybe Anne really was psychic. That's what Dr. Johnson thought anyway, and from then on, he became her devoted follower. Anne continued to feed him a load of horse shit, including saying that she lost three children and contemplated suicide during her first marriage, none of which was true. But her plan was to play on his sympathies, and it worked. She also claimed that she traveled through the cosmos, playing on Johnson's interest in metaphysics, something that would have been a bit more acceptable as an interest for a theoretical physicist back in those days. Dr. Johnson referred his rich and influential friends to Anne, and she used similar schemes and manufactured miracles to convince these very gullible rich people that she was a reincarnation of Christ. Another one of Anne's influential marks was psychiatrist Howard Whitaker. He researched psychedelic drugs, specifically LSD, and supplied it in large quantities to the group. In Australia, LSD was legally available to medical professionals until the mid-1970s. Anne claimed that using LSD had spiritual benefits. She used it herself and began requiring a ceremony for new initiates to the family, which involved injecting them with the drug and locking them in a room. Then, while the poor, gullible soul was still tripping balls, the door would burst open to reveal Anne in a theatrical display of flowing white robes and dry ice-induced mist. Sweet Lady Jesus. She called the ritual a clearing. Ultimately, she amassed 500 followers. Members were largely respected people in society, like lawyers and judges, scholars, doctors, and politicians. This is a little unusual compared to a lot of cults out there who focus their efforts on people who are a little lost in life, are seeking, looking for the meaning in their lives. Anyone can fall victim to a cult, including highly educated, successful people. But many cults do prey on people with as little social support as possible and quickly get to work undermining their ties to family and friends outside the cult. Not so with the family. And that was a deliberate strategy by Anne. These were wealthy, upper-class, powerful people with valuable skills and connections. They used their resources and influence to get Anne what she wanted. And one thing Anne wanted was a bunch of kids. She had a weird obsession with kids. She would go on to collect 28 of them. Some were the children of cult members, but it turned out that a bunch of them were kidnapped. Around 1968, Anne started collecting kids. 
A bunch of the cult members were nurses and doctors, and Anne had them steal newborns. Lawyers forged false papers for them, making it look like the kids were Anne's adopted or biological children. By the way, Anne never had a biological child. I don't know whether she couldn't or just chose not to, but I did read somewhere that she would occasionally fake a pregnancy to account for the extra kids the stork kept dropping off. Some of her followers were social workers who let Anne bypass legal steps to adopt kids. Supposedly, in one of her rackets, she even got a doctor to poison a mother with a young child. Anne showed up and performed a fake miracle cure, which just meant the doctor in her pocket would stop making the woman sick. And then she demanded to keep the child in exchange for quote-unquote saving the mom's life. She picked targets who were alone and vulnerable, single mothers estranged from their families, with no one to watch out for them. By 1971, she'd acquired seven kids through various schemes, and they all thought they were Anne's biological children. Because they were all about the same age, Anne created groupings of triplets and twins. She moved her new family to a lake house in Eildon, 90 miles northeast of Melbourne. She called their new home Up Top. The cult had about 500 members by this time, so they couldn't all move into the house, but most of the members moved into surrounding homes within a couple miles of the Up Top house, forming a little or not so little cult enclave in the area. So, what did Anne want with all those kids? She was collecting them as a hedge against the coming apocalypse, as specified by her own doctrine that she preached to her followers. Around this time, historically, nuclear tensions were high, the Cuban Missile Crisis had only increased the world's panic over nuclear weapons, and it wasn't that unreasonable to be afraid of the world ending at any moment. These kids were supposed to be the perfect specimens who would rebuild human civilization once the nuclear apocalypse had passed. No pressure, though. Oh, and it was racist. Yeah, that's where the great white aspect of the cult's name comes in. Anne pictured her family like the Von Trapps from The Sound of Music. The kids all had bleached blonde hair and were dressed in matching outfits and performed musical numbers. They were supposed to create a white master race after everyone else got vaporized in radioactive blasts. Anne kept them isolated from the outside world, but she had them pose for photos for the media, trying to portray an ideal family image. But despite her rather insane drive to collect children, she didn't seem to have much of an instinct to actually care for them or be a mother to them. She wasn't around them much and used them more as props in her post-apocalyptic, racially pure, ersatz spiritual narrative, even though they believed they were her biological children and needed her love and affection.
The children were left in the care of a few female cult members who they called aunties. The aunties enforced a strict code of discipline and a schedule that included a 5.30 a.m. wake-up time, meditation and yoga infused with the group's woo-woo New Age beliefs, and homeschool. They were kept away from the outside world except in Anne's carefully crafted photos and videos that allowed her to curate what the rest of the world saw of her family. Beatings, simulated drowning in a bucket of water, and other torturous punishments were common. Reportedly, if Anne was away from up top and a child misbehaved, Anne would call an auntie and have the phone held up to the child's face while another auntie beat the child with a belt. The kids were kept on a starvation diet, allowed to eat very little, and forced to participate in regular weigh-ins. They would sometimes make themselves vomit before the weigh-ins for fear of coming in overweight. If Anne or the aunties thought the kids were too heavy, they'd be starved even more, sometimes going days without food. Girls were shamed for their body changes at puberty. Anne herself was fixated on her appearance in another way, plastic surgery. She had countless procedures over the years, eventually becoming almost disfigured, her face like a mask. What made Anne the way she was? No one can say, but she did have a grim past before she manipulated her way into becoming the leader of a 500-member child-abusing doomsday cult. born Evelyn Grace Victoria Edwards in 1928 in the tiny farm town of Sale, Victoria in Australia. She was the first of seven kids and her father abandoned the family when Anne was a baby and only rarely popped back into the family's lives. Anne ended up spending much of her upbringing in an orphanage in Melbourne. Her mother, Florence, thought she could commune with spirits of the dead. But that wasn't her only odd behavior. Once, she set her hair on fire in the middle of the street. She was likely a paranoid schizophrenic, which can come with hallucinations and delusions. Mental health care in the early 20th century wasn't exactly top of the line, and Florence was committed to an institution in 1941. She spent over 25 years committed to various mental health facilities. Sadly, she never recovered from her mental illness and died institutionalized. So, Anne grew up poor, neglected, and institutionalized with an absent father and a severely mentally ill mother who herself was institutionalized from Anne's early adulthood onward. I think this story of her developmental years sheds a lot of light on her unhealthy obsession with creating the perfect family and her abject failure at doing so, possibly playing out some of the dysfunction she had suffered as a child. In her early 20s, she changed her name to Anne Hamilton for reasons unknown. She married a farmer named Lionel Harris and convinced him to desert the army during World War II. 
Lionel was caught and sent back to the front line, but not charged with desertion. After the war, the couple was settling down and they planned to adopt a baby boy. Finally, Anne was getting the family she'd always wanted. But in 1955, tragedy struck. Lionel was killed in a car accident. Everything she'd been yearning her whole life for and almost had within her grasp was ripped away, including the adoption of the baby boy. After these devastating events, Anne took solace in religion and yoga, which was becoming a popular fad after World War II. That actually surprised me. I had no idea that yoga was popular in Australia in the 1950s. Anyway, she got pretty serious with her practice, and she started teaching yoga in 1960 at age 39. The classes she led incorporated her own pseudo-spiritual ideas combining Eastern philosophies she'd been exposed to thanks to her mother, who had used it in her work as a so-called medium before she was committed. Anne started gaining a reputation as a spiritual guru for local middle-aged women who came to her yoga classes. She swirled in Hinduism and Buddhism, which she cherry-picked and intermixed with Christianity. Jesus, Buddha, Krishna, and now Anne were all spiritual beings who had come to earth to help humanity. To Anne's new followers, she'd become the new Christ. And that's how Evelyn Grace Victoria Edwards became Anne Hamilton Byrne, cult leader. The adults in the family were constantly high on LSD, but worse, the kids were routinely dosed with a variety of psychiatric drugs, and after reaching adolescence, they had to undergo an initiation with LSD. It was called going through. It was something like the clearings I described earlier, injected with LSD and locked alone in a room, but it went on for days with an auntie dosing them every 12 hours. Listen to what former up-top child Dave Whitaker said about the time his father injected him with LSD. And yeah, his dad was Dr. Whitaker, the one I mentioned earlier, the psychiatrist who supplied all the drugs. Anne would come in every now and again and sat down beside me and whispered in my ear, who is Jesus? And then somehow the thought popped into my head, you're Jesus. And she goes, that's right, David. You always knew I was the Lord. Yeah. In one case, a girl screamed so much during the initiation that a neighbor all the way across the lake from up top called the police. When police arrived at the house, one of the aunties distracted them by serving them tea while other cult members crammed all the kids into a crawl space in the basement that the children referred to as the hole. A piece of plywood and a painting placed over the opening to the hole kept the children completely hidden from view. The children were afraid of police, having been taught in homeschool that police are evil and would hurt them. 
so they stayed quiet. By the mid-1970s, Anne had collected more kids, some that cult members gave her, but mostly through kidnapping, coercion, and adoption scams. She would acquire 28 in total. She also married her partner, Bill Byrne, a wealthy British expat in 1978. The group built themselves a temple in the Dandenongs, a low mountain range about 20 miles east of Melbourne. They named their new temple after an ashram in India. They had two worship days a week when Anne would preach her hodgepodge of appropriated Eastern religion, Christianity, and doomsday prophecy to an audience of hundreds of followers who were usually tripping balls. One of the up-top children, Sarah, the first child Anne had ever taken, had a rebellious streak and took to sneaking out of the house at night and breaking into neighbors' homes where she would steal food and hide it near the up-top house so that she could eat when she was hungry. Eventually, some of the other children found out about her scheme and began joining her on her foraging missions. After a while, the break-ins came to the attention of local police, who began investigating this strange crime spree. The local community had also started to notice that maybe something wasn't right at the up-top house. At one point, another of the girls, Leanne, got in an argument with Anne, who had hit her, and she hit her back. She bolted from the house, leaping out of a window, and ran to a neighbor's house asking to call the police. The police did come, but the aunties convinced them that she was unstable and the police took her back to the house. Two years later, she got up the nerve to run away again and ended up at the same neighbor's house, and the same police officer responded. But this time, she refused to return to the house, and the officer took her to stay with a foster family. She tried to move on, but she knew absolutely nothing about how to function in the outside world. In 1980, a 10-year-old girl, Kim Halm, went missing, taken by the family. And this time, people noticed. The girl's father suspected the group of having something to do with it, based on a suspicious vehicle he'd seen when his daughter went missing and which police were able to trace to the family. Finally, the kidnappings were starting to catch up with the cult. But it turned out, that the girl's mother was a member of the cult. So, even though the father took the case to court and it generated media attention toward the family, there was ultimately nothing done, since the girl was with her mother. By this time, Anne had amassed significant wealth and properties around the world. Her apocalypse prophecy no longer served her. She had everything she wanted and she began to lose interest in the cult generally and in the kids. She and Bill began traveling more, spending time at their properties in England and America, and spending less and less time at Uptop. In 1985, 16-year-old Uptop kid Sarah had an altercation with Anne, who disowned Sarah, throwing her out of the house 
and telling her to go die in the gutter. So much for family. Sarah sought refuge with some friendly neighbors who took her in and managed to reunite with Leanne, the other runaway. They were both upset that they had left the other children behind in the House of Horrors and resolved to go to the police and tell them everything. That finally kicked off a serious investigation of Anne Hamilton Byrne, the family, and Uptop. And in August 1987, state and federal police raided the Uptop house, removing all of the children from the home. Anne wasn't at the house at the time. She was in the U.S. at a home she owned in the Catskill Mountains of New York State. But Bill Hamilton Byrne was at home, and he physically restrained one of the children, refusing to let her go even when threatened by police at gunpoint. Officers physically wrestled the child away from him. Other cultist homes were also raided, with huge quantities of LSD and prescription drugs seized. Anne released a weird, bullshitty, faux-spiritual video from New York in response to news of the raids. And that was it. The family dispersed, some fearing legal repercussions, Their reputations were destroyed, their professional lives in tatters, and rightly so. The aunties were never brought to justice for abuse, though they were fined and one spent a few months in jail for social security fraud, and all have now passed away. Anne Hamilton Byrne was also never brought to justice, nor was her husband, Bill Hamilton Byrne, who had joined Anne in New York after the raid where, inexplicably, no arrests had been made. Anne was extradited from the U.S. back to Australia in 1993, but the authorities believed they lacked enough physical evidence to make any charges stick and were hesitant to put the children through any additional trauma by making them testify in court especially when it might be all for nothing with the lack of hard evidence. Ultimately, Anne and Bill were charged only with the false registration of triplets, one of their fake adoption schemes. They were each given a $5,000 fine, pocket change given the millions they had accumulated, and in August 1994, they walked out of the Victoria court scot-free. The Uptop children suffered lifelong consequences from their cruel, dysfunctional upbringing. Some found their birth families. For others, it was too late. Sarah, one of the brave girls who brought it all down and helped save her 21 siblings from their lives of horror at Uptop, became a doctor and dedicated her life to helping other people. And she eventually found her birth mother, But she passed away in 2016 at age 46, after a lifetime battling depression, drug abuse, and suicide attempts. Meanwhile, Anne Hamilton Byrne lived out her life as a multimillionaire and spent her later years in an elder care facility with severe dementia. She passed away in 2019 at age 98. 
Unbelievably, there are still a handful of acolytes of the family clinging to the shipwreck of lies, cons, and abuse. enjoyed this episode, please follow and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it. And if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link at the bottom of the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website failedutopia.com or the Facebook page at failedutopiapod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.